Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arnie. This week, why we're just passengers in our own bodies, outnumbered by our resident bacteria, how these bugs can alter your brain and your behaviour, and transpusion, the poo transplant process that might one day save your life. Plus, why the chances of ET existing rocketed this week, and how birds count in exactly the same way, it seems, that we do. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. The likelihood of the existence of extraterrestrial life, that's aliens to you and me, increased dramatically this week when astronomers announced the discovery of a planetary system with four small, rocky Earth-sized planets around it. Even more impressive is that they're over 11 billion years old. Previously, scientists thought rocky and potentially life-sustaining planets like these couldn't exist this early in the history of the universe. From Birmingham University, Tiag Kampant. In this paper, we announce the discovery of a fascinating planetary system with five Earth-sized planets that date back to the dawn of the galaxy. The innermost planet has a size similar to that of Mercury, and its size has been measured with a precision of only a few tens of miles. That's an impressive technological achievement. The three intermediate planets are the size of Mars, and the outermost planet is slightly smaller than uh, Venus. When you say the dawn of the galaxy, how old is that, and which galaxy are we talking about here? We're talking about our own galaxy, the Milky Way, and the age of this system has been estimated at an impressive 11 billion years. The universe itself has an estimated age of 13.8 billion years. So this planet existed when the universe was less than 20% of its current age. Had we previously not believed that small rocky planets like the Earth would come along quite so quickly in the universe's evolution? And is that why this is a game changer, what you found? Absolutely. Only a few years ago, we thought that the formation of planets around old stars was unlikely to happen. And that's because old stars miss or are less abundant or their environments are less abundant in heavy metals. Think of iron, for example. And those heavy metals are the building blocks to planetary formation. So it would be expected that the formation of a planetary system around such an old star would be a rare event. Why are those very early stars and therefore the planets that might or might not form around them devoid or or lacking in these metals? Very good question. So the primordial universe was composed of hydrogen and helium, and it was only in the interior of the first generations of stars that heavy elements were formed. When these stars died and exploded as supernovae, they released this first synthesized heavy elements into the interstellar space, and then the following generations of of stars and planets could already use those. Because I suppose this suggests that planets of the sort of size, scale and possibly the environment of the Earth could have existed for a lot longer then than we had previously anticipated. Yes, never before had planets this small been found around a star this old. How did you find them? 
to find these planets, we needed to monitor this particular star with the Kepler satellite. The Kepler satellite collected four years of photometry, basically measuring the changes in brightness of stars. And when planets cross in front of the apparent disk of their stars, there is a slight dimming of their brightness. And that's how we detected these planets. Tiag Campantis from the University of Birmingham. Humans do it, primates do it, and now it's been found out that birds can also do it. I'm talking about counting. Three-day-old chickens have been shown to order numbers low to high from left to right, just like we do on a ruler. The findings, published in the journal Science, could indicate that this numerical ability is a feature of evolution rather than culture and could help to explain why we pay more attention to things presented on our left. Zoologist Hannah Rowland from the University of Cambridge put Greer Jackson's numerical skills to the test. Plenty of people have been very interested in whether counting is a uniquely human behaviour. And lots of research has been done to figure out if animals have a sense of number. A really famous one that all students are taught is that peahens like to mate with peacocks that have about 150 eyes in their tail. And if you take about five eyes out, the male peacock becomes far less attractive to the female. Now, people might think that she's standing there going one, two, three, four, 149, 150... But to actually tell the difference between a tail that has 150 eye spots and 145, she doesn't have to count. So she can pay attention to the asymmetry of the tail or the density of spots in the tail. And so while it might look like she's counting, she doesn't have to actually count at all. Is there any way that you can tell if an animal can count? Because I imagine it's quite hard to disentangle what you're talking about and also the whole one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So to actually test whether animals can count, you have to look for whether they can pay attention to the order of numbers or dots or symbols. And there's lots of research been done on this with primates. What about birds? Birds can certainly tell the difference between patches that have a lot of items or fewer items, but that's not counting as such. That's more numerical discrimination. Given that the paper looked at domestic chickens, we thought it only appropriate to go and see some chickens ourselves. The only problem was they were very scared of us, so we had to feed them a bit of my pack lunch to get them to say hello. Hello. Oh, look, they're eating the peas. So my lunch didn't go to waste then. What are these guys called? Are they named after the colours? Because they're beautiful colours. You've got a grey one, a sort of very warm orange, then a light orange, and a, and a black with flecks of teal almost. So the black one's called bramble, and the grey's called teasel, and the yellowy and the brown ones are heather and bracken. And it's, yeah, it's after their colours. Let's talk a bit about this paper. What about the idea that if they can count there is a tendency to count from left to right, just like humans do. So this paper that's come out in science, it's based upon research that actually was right back in the 19th century. So Francis Galton was one of the first people to realise that when we think of numbers, we generally order them on a horizontal line, so across a page, and usually from left to right. So maybe I can actually get you to do it. So think of a ruler... 
Think of where number six is in the position on the ruler. Now, I'm going to tell you a number. And if the number is smaller than the number six, I want you to raise your left hand. And if it's larger than the number six, I want you to raise your right hand. So think of number six, eight. Now, I raised my right hand. I did it right, right? You did. And you were really fast. Now, think of number six. If the number I say is smaller, I want you to raise your right hand. And if the number is larger, I want you to raise your left hand. Four. (laughs) I did have to think about it this time, though. I raised my right hand, but I did have to think about it. Exactly. And that's because it's much easier for people to order things that get larger so that grow in magnitude from left to right. And that's the same in chicks as well, then? Yes, it turns out that they show the same behaviour. Imagine you're in a box. There's a card in the middle of the box with five dots on it. Behind it is a tasty treat. This happens again and again and again. A card with five dots is always in the middle. Then one day, there's two cards, one on your left, one on your right. Both have two dots on them. Which one do you look behind for your tasty mealworm reward? Well, the chicks nearly always picked the one on the left. Maybe chicks are all left-winged. So in the next tests, they added two cards with eight dots on them. One on the left, one on the right, same layout, different dots. Guess what? They looked behind the right card for their reward. This shows that chicks, like humans, associate lower numbers on the left and higher numbers on the right. In humans... We know that this is because the right-hand side of our brain is very dominant, so we pay attention to the left-hand side of pictures. And this seems to be the same in chickens as well. I find this quite surprising that we share this attribute with chicks because surely that means that the reading of numbers from left to right isn't a cultural thing. It's built in us because we split from birds, what, 300 million years ago or something. Why might we share this with birds? Well... I think that's a question that those researchers are still going to try and find out. Maybe that we have some very ancient shared ancestry where the wiring of our brain is very similar way back in evolutionary history. So don't count your chickens is the moral of that one. Now, when an animal, including a human, is pregnant, the developing baby exchanges nutrients and waste products through its umbilical cord and placenta, which attach to the wall of the mother's uterus. But if the mother's exposed to stress, the placenta works less well, and this can affect the growth of the baby, as Cambridge University's Owen Vaughan explained to Danielle Blackwell. The aim of this study was to look at how glucocorticoids, which are a stress hormone uh, secreted both in the mother and the fetus, what happens when they're raised during pregnancy. What we found was that when these glucocorticoid levels are raised in the pregnant mother, the ability of the placenta to transport glucose to the fetus is reduced. And how did you conduct the study? So the study used mice. The mice were given corticosterone in their drinking water for five days. We then used a tracer technology to measure the amount of glucose passing across the placenta. So what direct effects did this have on the fetus? The fetus itself was smaller at the time we conducted the study, which was Uh, towards the end of pregnancy. In humans, being a smaller baby 
puts you first of all at greater risk of complications in the immediate postnatal period, but also increases your lifelong risk of metabolic disease, so things like type 2 diabetes and obesity. You mentioned in your paper that some of the mice given the stress hormone were overeating. How does this affect the amount of glucose that then can pass through the placenta? The glucocorticoid treatment also increased the amount of food that the animals ate each day. But what we found was that if we prevented them from overeating, we no longer saw the changes in the ability of the placenta to transport glucose. So clearly there's an interaction between maternal stress levels and nutritional intake. Is it possible that we can then remove some of the harmful effects to the fetus by controlling the diet instead of maybe controlling the stress hormones? What this might mean is that we can limit the effects of stress on the fetus by manipulating the maternal diet so that for any particular stress hormone profile, there might be a most appropriate diet for the mother during pregnancy. So far, all this work has been carried out in mice. Do you see this applying to humans? Is there a similar mechanism that happens um, in humans with elevated stress hormone levels, do we think? Well, certainly glucocorticoids are a a sort of a central signal of many different sorts of stress. In humans, they are raised in response to more psychosocial stresses, but also things like nutrient deprivation. Is this something that we could possibly then use as a drug target if there are mothers that are going through prolonged periods of stress and have prolonged elevated stress hormone levels? Is this something that maybe we can therapeutically target to remove these adverse effects? In particular, we found that when the stress hormone levels are high in the mother, the expression of a particular gene called RED1 in the placenta is increased. So if we can somehow alter the way that responds to stress or nutrients in the mother, we might have a way of protecting placental function from changes in the maternal environment. Owen Vaughan there speaking with Daniel Blackwell. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Kat Arney. Still to come, how running a race at the right time could knock 26% off an athlete's track record. Might be useful to know that ahead of Rio next year. Before that, though, one in five violent offenders are what psychiatrists would describe as psychopaths. They're callous, unemotional and from childhood show violent tendencies. They're also responsible for a disproportionately large amount of crime. But a big problem dealing with psychopathic criminals is that punishments like prison usually offer no deterrent to reoffending. Now, Nigel Blackwood and his team at King's College London have discovered that this may be because their brains are wired up differently. Psychopaths are individuals who have been involved in antisocial behaviours across their lifespan. They're conduct disordered as kids with what we call callous and emotional traits and grow up to be adult psychopaths. So in common with the broader antisocial group, they have a lifespan history of impulsivity, risk-taking behaviours, poor decision-making. So they lack an empathy, they're callous, they're interpersonally manipulative, and they use aggression in an instrumental way to get what they want. What's the wider impact to society of these kinds of people? So the broad antisocial group, a small number of men, are responsible for the vast majority of offending behaviours in our society today. And that psychopathic subgroup are likely to offend, start offending earlier, have a higher frequency of offending behaviours, and are most likely to re-offend when they're released from prison. So that's a very important 
group to try and intervene in. How did you go about trying to study this group of people in more detail? So there's plenty of studies that look at the differences between psychopaths' brains and normal subjects in the community. But if we really think there's something important about psychopathy, we've got to show that there's differences between people who are antisocial and psychopathic and those who are antisocial and not psychopathic. So we looked at 50 men, some from the community, and the vast majority coming out of prison into being looked after in probation services. We made sure that they had violently offended in the past, so they'd been involved in murder, attempted murder, GBH, rape, and then decided whether they were or were not truly psychopathic. And then we looked at the differences in those three groups in our brain scanner. And what did you find that was different between them? Well, I suppose there's a folk idea that the psychopathic group don't respond to punishment just because there's reduced sensitivity to punishment. You know, they've years of being punished by their parents, by their teachers, by the prison system, and they just don't respond anymore. But that isn't what we found. So we found at the moment at which uh, the psychopathic group were punished in uh, task which involved reward and punishment. They showed increased activity in areas that track such information. So they're not just reduced in their sensitivity to punishment. There's something fundamentally different about the way they process punishment information. To play devil's advocate slightly, if this is something that's just intrinsic in the way someone's brain is wired up, you're wired to be a psychopath, why don't we just keep them in prison forever? Well, we know that this subgroup are more genetically vulnerable, but we shouldn't be pessimistic at this stage that these kids are doomed from the womb and we've got to preventatively detain them. What we need to put our efforts into is changing the treatment programmes, and I think we can maintain at least some sense of therapeutic optimism about our approach to such people. Nigel Blackwood there from King's College London. Athletes completing at the wrong time of day could be missing their best by up to 26%. And that's according to a new study. By comparing the sporting performances of owl athletes with more lark-like early risers, Birmingham scientist Roland Branstetter has shown that correctly syncing your race time with your body clock can make the difference between a gold medal and not even qualifying. What we have found is that the performance of individual athletes is different between what we call human owls and human larks and that means people with different types of body clocks. Early risers, the ones that we call larks, who get up early in the morning um, and want to go to bed early, have their performance maximum around midday while those that wake up late and go to bed very late, so-called owls, have their performance maximum in the evening at around 8 o'clock. What we also found is that the performance difference of an athlete between their morning performance and their evening performance can be as pronounced as um, 26%, which is huge in the sports world. Yes, I mean, Um, indeed, that's going to make the difference between whether someone even qualifies to compete in the 100 metres compared with winning the 100 metres, isn't it? I mean, it's a massive difference. Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the London Olympics in the 100-meter men's race, the time difference between the gold medal and the last one in the race was only 5%. Now, how did you arrive at this conclusion? What did you actually do to discover this? What we did is um, we looked at a certain number of competition-level athletes and let them complete a questionnaire that asks for many different parameters related to their sleep-wake rhythms, training schedules, eating habits, etc., etc. 
And then we classified these individuals into the larks, intermediate ones and owls. Then we selected athletes from this pool and conducted bleep tests with them. That's a standard fitness and performance test at six different times of day with them and found that they are significantly different between owls and larks. Why do you think you see this very dramatic difference between these different types of people and how they perform at different times of the day? How do you account for this? The reason why we see these differences is because these individuals have different body clocks. The early types, the larks, have faster running body clocks. And you have to bear in mind that the body clock controls more or less all of our physiology, everything. For an athlete, this is particularly important because things like how sugar is utilized by the muscles, how alert the person is, and of course, how physically active we can be depends very much on the state of wakefulness. So if you are fully awake because your biologic clock lets you, then you can achieve your personal best performance. Can you see a time then when athletes are going to be profiled and people are going to say, well, let's do a test on you. We'll see whether you're an early type or a late type. And then people may be selected or dropped for games, matches and so on based on what sort of body clock type they've got and and when the match is going to be played. I think it might become a very important aspect in the future. What you have to bear in mind is that different sports have their different times of day. So very often you see marathons take place in the morning, but then we look at football that mostly takes place in the afternoon and in the evening. And of course, football is a very good example, actually, because a lot of the Premier League games happen in the afternoon, while if you play Champions League, you have to be at your personal best performance in the evening. So what I can imagine is that by profiling individuals and knowing about their body clocks, athletes and coaches can have a huge advantage. We do not think in terms of individuals being dropped. People can actually work on optimizing their performance. But of course, if you look at it from the point of view of a coach, if you are a football coach in the Premier League and you have equally skilled players that are early types and late types, you can choose maybe more of the early types for an afternoon match, but more of the late types for an evening match. And again, you would have a huge advantage. So what what type are you? Roland, do you write your best papers and do your best research in the morning or does it come to you late at night? I'm an intermediate type, but since I know very well how my body clock works and since I know exactly how to speak to my body clock, I can very easily entrain myself, shift myself to become an owl or to become a lark depending on what the requirements are. I wish I had that problem. Roland Branstetter, he is clearly a man for all seasons and possibly all time zones too. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Twitter, it's at Naked Scientists, or look up our Facebook page. Now, on to our main theme for the show this week... Do you consider yourself human? Well, I hate to break it to you, but your human cells are outnumbered by the millions of microbes living in and on you. They're what we call our microbiome. And this week we're taking quite literally a top to bottom journey through our insides to find out more about the bugs that make us passengers in our own bodies. 
We'll be looking at how our gut bugs affect our brains, why poo transplants could be the next big thing, and we dig into the diets and preserved offerings of our ancestors to find out more about the bacteria they were carrying. But first, to learn more about our microbial friends, how they got there and what they're doing, I spoke to science writer Ed Yong, and he's writing a book on this very subject to get the basics. People think of themselves as as individuals, as a single animal, but actually every one of us is an ecosystem. Inside our bodies and on our skins, we have trillions of bacteria and other microbes that live with us, that influence our lives. They aren't just mere hitchhikers or passengers. They are integral parts of our bodies. Um, They do things like help us to digest our food. They protect us from other uh, deadlier microbes that threaten to cause diseases. They help to shape our immune systems and perhaps even our behaviour. They're very much a part of us. I guess that bacteria have a bit of a bad rap because we always think of them as causing diseases. How recently did we get this alternative view of them that actually they may be a really important part of our lives? I think people have known that for actually a very long time, but it's been quite a neglected concept. So even um, people like Pasteur had some appreciation that microbes could play a beneficial role. But um, you're right that we've come to think of microbes generally as causes of disease. So you get endless news stories saying um, your mobile phone or your keyboard has more bacteria on it than a toilet seat. And the implication there is that bacteria are a sign of dirt and filth, that they are bad things that you want to get rid of and destroy. Whereas that's just not true. There are obviously microbes that make us sick, but there are probably many more that actually help us or at worst are completely neutral. Um, Bacteria had um, the planet to themselves for billions of years before any human or any even, even any animal came on the scene. So we, we live in their world and we have evolved in their world. If you say that bacteria are found all over me, you know, my skin, in my gut, where did they come from? It's generally thought that people are born sterile, so that the womb is a, is a sterile bubble in which it's just the baby. Now, that may or may not be completely true, but the fact remains that most of a child's bacteria um, are seeded into it when it emerges um, from its mother. So not to put too fine a point (laughs) in it, when you're born, you're slathered with microbes, which then become yours. They colonize the rest of you. They get your mouth. So you get them from your mum, basically. A lot of animals do that. Um, Some inherit microbes um, while they're still an unfertilized egg. Some get them at the point where they're born. Others eat them from things that their mothers provide. We see in the news there are good bacteria and bad bacteria. Is this a a fair definition? You know, I, I look at my hand, it must be covered in bacteria. How do I know which ones are good and bad? So I think some bacteria um, you, could pr- you could reasonably classify as bad. So Yersinia pestis, which causes plague, is probably mm-hmm. bad. Um, Bacillus anthracis, which causes anthrax, again, I think you could call that bad. But in most cases, um, those definitions don't really work. Say the bacteria that live in our gut, they play important roles in our lives, help to digest our food, yada, yada, yada. 
but they can also revolt if they get across the lining of the gut and enter the bloodstream. They can cause really strong, debilitating immune reactions. So the same bacteria can be good in one setting, and if you translocate them by about a few millimeters, they can suddenly be bad and dangerous. So really, these concepts of good and bad, they are dependent on place and time and context. In recent years, we've heard a lot about you know gene sequencing and people reading the gene sequences, the DNA sequences of different bacteria, the microbiome. What sort of stuff is starting to emerge from from these studies? Because we hear about a lot about them, and it's hard to know what do they mean. It's clear and increasingly so that. Bacteria do play important part of our lives, and I don't think it's hype to to say that and to to emphasise it.、Um, we are used to thinking of, of ourselves as, as individuals that we we live under our own steam, we behave under our own wills,、um, we grow up from a, a single egg into this complicated、um, organism under instructions from our own genomes, and all of those things. Are complicated by the presence of bacteria. So we know that bacteria shape our development, they shape our behaviour, they shape our physiology. But we also know that bacteria affect our health. So lots of studies have compared healthy people and people with diseases or various health problems,、um, from obesity to diabetes to colon cancer, and compared their microbiomes to those healthy people, and they found differences. Now, what this means is still unclear. I think in some cases we've got better evidence that the bacteria are behind those conditions, but in others it's not clear whether the changes in the microbiome are just sort of going along for the ride, whether they're the result of the condition rather than the cause of that. Are someone's gut bugs making them fat, or because they're fat they have different gut bugs? Exactly. Yeah. Or maybe, or probably, a cycle of both of those things, and I think that's where there's currently a bit of hype. The microbiome has been linked to virtually every health condition under the sun. Now, people have written reviews saying maybe the microbiome is behind、um, religious behaviour or, or, or all <laughs> sorts of you know aspects of now human culture and behaviour. Like it's, it's it's really just the bug. <laughs> that's right. Everything is to do with microbiome. You know, why do I feel why did I feel sad on Tuesday? Microbiome. Why do I crave a coffee right now? Microbiome. A vehicle for our bacteria. We are right, and I think you know. The, well, obviously we're not. I think that's that's this. This is where、um, the the hype around the science goes too far. We need to to rein it back in. What we need now is some careful science that looks beyond just comparing patterns in different people and establishes things like. Causality: what, what is actually a result of the bugs, or vice versa, and how do they affect our, our, our health? What is the mechanism behind these things? That was Ed Yong. I had a lot of fun talking to him, and his book on the microbiome, "I Contain Multitudes," is due out next year. Now let's take a closer look at some of these bacteria at the start of your gut, which, believe it or not. Is actually your mouth. Joining us from Glasgow University is Marcello Riggio, and he looks at the bacteria that live there and what happens when the numbers of them goes off kilter. Hello, Marcello. Hello, Chris. Good evening. Now, what kinds of things can one expect to find in one's mouth, microbiologically speaking? Yes, the mouth is a very, very bacterial-rich environment. Indeed, compared to other parts of the body, one might be surprised to to know that it is really one of the most diverse parts of the human body. And there are approximately a thousand 
different bacterial species in the human mouth. Although most of us usually carry only up to 75 different types of bacterial species. And the mouth is a, is a wonderful place for bacteria to grow. It's got a fairly neutral pH and it's got a temperature of about 36 degrees. So it really is a, a perfect environment for bacteria to grow in. Food on tap as well. Absolutely. Uh, bacteria can gain their food from, from the saliva of the host and also food debris from in between the teeth, which is why it's very good to floss your teeth to uh, minimise bacterial metabolism, particularly of the bad bacteria which we mentioned earlier. Now, when you talk about flossing of teeth, I think this is an important point because there's an old saying amongst dentists that you don't need to floss all your teeth, just the ones you want to keep. But equally, scientists certainly in New Zealand to start with and now around the world are finding that if you have bad gum disease surprisingly this is also linked to heart disease. Yes gum disease comes in in two forms essentially the less severe one is called gingivitis which is an inflammation of the gums and the gums bleed and I'm sure it affects most of us from time to time we brush our teeth and we, we spit out a little bit of blood but the more advanced form of gum disease is known as periodontitis and this is far more severe form if gingivitis isn't treated by good oral hygiene, flossing, use of mouthwashes and brushing the teeth, you will have periodontitis which if not treated will result in destruction of the surrounding tissues and bone and eventually tooth loss. Now this is a particular problem due to the fact that people with periodontal disease have a much higher incidence of more serious diseases because the bacteria from the mouth in people who've got gum disease can get into the bloodstream and are carried through the blood to other parts in the body where they can cause life-threatening uh, diseases and things such as heart disease, strokes, diabetes, dementia, rheumatoid arthritis, even premature birth and endocarditis which is an infection of the inner lining of the heart and the heart valves. These are, have all been associated with the presence of gum disease in particular uh, periodontitis, the more severe form. Thing is, though, that every time someone cleans their teeth, they're going to get a little shower of bacteria going around in the bloodstream, aren't they? So there must be a difference between that manifestation of a few bacteria going in the blood and this more pronounced form of inflammation that seems to be linked to things like heart disease and stroke. Yes, that's correct. We have what are known as transient bacteria, is the, the, the term that we use for bacteria getting into the blood. But yes, even eating an apple or brushing teeth sets up a very sort of transient uh, and small number of bacteria that do enter the bloodstream. But in small numbers, the immune system can cope quite well with those uh, foreign bacteria in the bloodstream and they're eliminated. The problem is when you have much more serious diseases, such as gum disease, periodontitis, and you've got large numbers of bacteria which enter the bloodstream and that tends to overwhelm the immune system, particularly removing a tooth or having various forms of dental treatment, root canal treatment, etc., etc., these are much more serious levels of bacteria that are entering the bloodstream which are not eliminated so easily by the immune system. And apart from flossing your teeth, what can you actually do to keep the mouth a healthy place? Can we, for instance, do for the mouth what probiotic yogurts do for the intestine? Yeah, probiotics have been promoted and we see adverts for leading brands on the TV very frequently. Having said that, there are some studies, scientific studies, that have questioned recently the, the effectiveness of probiotics. There is evidence to suggest that probiotics can boost immunity, our natural immunity, because they introduce uh, good bacteria both into the gut and also into the oral cavity. It's far more difficult to have a, a stable introduction of the good bacteria present in probiotics for them to actually colonise or set up home in the oral cavity.
Now, obviously, Valentine's Day is not far away. When you snog someone, are you quite literally, and it's quite funny because our producer George has written here, are you doing a foreign exchange programme for your microorganisms with the person that you're getting jiggy with? Very much so. And I don't want to put people off kissing, but uh, a recent study did show that around 80 million bacteria are transferred in a single 10-second intimate kiss, as the researchers succinctly put it. And uh, what these researchers did, they looked at couples and they gave one, one member of the couple a probiotic drink containing easily identifiable bacteria. And they looked at the populations of bacteria on the tongue and saliva samples before and after the kiss. And they showed that the bacteria in the saliva of the partner who was accepting the saliva in effect, those bacteria within a probiotic drink rose threefold, whereas the bacteria on the tongue remained much more uh, stable. And also what they found was that often, the more often a couple kissed, the more similar the bacteria that they shared in the saliva samples. And obviously if you live with somebody, uh, there are various mechanisms that exist for uh, sharing of bacteria. You've got a shared lifestyle and, and similar perhaps dietary and personal care habits. That really is food for thought, isn't it? Marcello Riggio from Glasgow University. Thanks very much. Cat. I may never kiss anyone ever again, I think. Anyway, it's clear our bacteria do play an important role in at least some aspects of our well-being. But have our modern lifestyles had an impact on the types of bacteria that live inside us? One way of looking at this is to consider the microbiomes of our ancestors. But unfortunately, bacteria don't tend to fossilise, which makes this a bit difficult. But Jessica Metcalf, a self-confessed poologist from the University of Colorado in Boulder, is not getting down in the dumps. Or maybe she is. Thanks for joining us, Jessica. So tell me, what can our ancient ancestors' poo bacteria tell us? What we can gain from studying the microbes that our ancestors had is to sort of compare it to what we have today and see what we're missing. Um, So we know that because of things like our widespread antibiotic use, intensive hygiene practices, and spending so much time indoors, and sort of our more high-fat high-protein diets that lack fiber, we've probably changed our gut microbiome substantially. And so the question is, well, what did we used to have? How do we figure that out? And one of the ways we can do that is by looking at the microbes that our ancestors had that's preserved in fecal material around the world. And fecal material is what we usually study to characterize a gut microbiome because When you poo, out comes all the microbes that are in your colon as well. And so this gives us a really nice, easy way to understand what's in the gut. Um, And so we have been able to study fecal material from caves in North America and Central America, Viking latrines from England, and also occasionally in naturally mummified human remains. So when you get a, a sample like this, how do you go about studying it? What, do you, what are you looking for and how do you treat it? Because these fecal samples have been, you know, sitting around from anywhere from several hundred years to several thousands of years, we really worry about contamination. And so we work with an ancient DNA lab, so clean labs, to help protect the samples from further environmental contamination and also to allow us to really cleanly sort of remove the outer layer 
of these samples with like a Dremel drill and also with bleach so that we just get the DNA sort of out of the middle where it's most likely to have avoided contamination from like soil or other environmental microbes. What have you found out so far from studying these samples, from studying the DNA in them, about what's different between our gut bugs today and those of our ancestors that lived before us? Right. We're finding some really, really interesting results. So we're confirming our hypothesis that certainly people living in Western societies today are missing some microbes. And so overall, there's a a lot lower diversity or number of microbes in our gut microbiomes. And so we're finding that, you know, we're not only missing particular bacteria, like the diversity of of this whole group called treponema, um, but also different strains of bacteria that we do have, we just don't have as many different types anymore. And actually, one other really interesting finding is that it's not only the bacteria that we're missing, but also the microscopic eukaryotes. So eukaryotes have nucleated cells like us. So we're eukaryotes, plants, fungi, but most eukaryotes are actually microscopic and we usually think of them as parasites. But some of these small microbial eukaryotes were probably beneficial or at least not harmful and were almost completely missing those in Western populations now. I was going to ask, obviously, having loads of bacteria and parasites could be a good or a bad thing. And we do have this assumption today that our modern life is terrible and making us sick. Do you think this difference in our microbiome from how it used to be to how things are today for, you know, someone like me, I live in a city, is this actually doing me harm? And is it contributing to the kinds of diseases that do seem to afflict us more as modern humans? Well, I think the only honest answer to that is we don't really know. There are studies coming out that suggest that certainly maybe some of the autoimmune diseases and the effects on training our immune system by not having enough of these microbes may be a real phenomenon. But it, you know, this is incredibly complex and it's going to be really complicated to pick apart. But I think overall, we know that things like eating fiber increases the diversity of our microbes and that's most likely going to be a good thing. Interesting stuff. Thanks very much. That's Jessica Metcalf. Apart from aiding digestion and keeping bad bugs at bay, evidence is emerging that our intestinal microbes can also affect our behaviour and even the way the brain develops. Neuroscientist John Cryan is exploring this topic at University College Cork in Ireland. The whole concept that your gut signals to your brain, while it mightn't be so new because we use it in our language, like gut feelings and gut instincts, the actual pathways of this communication is only being slowly figured out right now. And among those that we've been working on is through different nerves. In particular, there's a nerve called the vagus nerve, which is very important for sending signals from the periphery to the brain. And we've shown that that's important, at least for some of the effects of bacteria. We know bacteria can produce a variety of neurochemicals that can affect different aspects of physiology. And some of these chemicals that the bacteria produce, if they get into the bloodstream, can get to the brain and can actually influence brain function. And this is another area we're working on. So what evidence have you got that this may genuinely be happening? So most of the evidence to date comes from studies in in mice and rats. And I suppose what we got into it in the first place was the the fact that we found that if stress uh, have a long-term effect on, on the signature of these bacteria in the gut... Also, we've shown and others have shown if you take away bacteria and create a germ-free environment in animals, you uh, have a very increased stress response. So therefore, having a normal stress response is dependent on having appropriate bacteria in your gut. 
So therefore, we ask the flip question, which is really, could we modulate the stress response by targeting uh, the bacteria within your gut? And so we did some studies where we fed some adult mice with a specific bacteria, and we found that these mice were a lot more chilled out and relaxed and didn't have the same stress response. And so when we uh, looked at whether the vagus was involved, uh, we showed that these were all dependent on this signal through this neuronal pathway, the vagus nerve. So your theory might be then that the bacteria in some way adjust the biochemistry of the gut where they are and this is picked up by the vagus nerve and relayed to the brain where that in turn alters what the brain is doing. Absolutely, absolutely. So what might be the implications then of someone taking a hefty course of antibiotics and these clearing out many of the healthy or so-called good bacteria that live in the gut? Might that have a mood-altering effect. Good studies on this haven't been really carried out, to be honest. That said, we have shown and others that, that you know the impact of antibiotics in early life can have widespread effects on physiology later in life. Uh, we've shown that there's like an increased visceral pain, uh, abdominal pain in animals that have been exposed to antibiotics early in life. So the studies on, you know, if, if you need to take antibiotics, and adulthood, really, there's nothing robust to indicate that there is a bad effect on brain and behavior, but perhaps during more neurodevelopmentally sensitive time periods that this is going to be more robust. Do you think then we might be able to extrapolate this to other things like breastfeeding or caesarean section, both of which have been linked to a shift in the kinds of bugs that colonize the gut, and that change in gut colonization seems to persist into adulthood. So experiments have been done on, on animals that are breastfed or not breastfed, and they end up as adults with quite a different type of bacterial spectrum living in their intestines. Same with caesarean section. Do you think there might be some repercussions from that then? Absolutely. I think this is a really exciting area to, that, that has gone ignored up till now. We know that, that, especially early in life, some of the factors that, as you mentioned, that mode of delivery and, and mode of uh, nutrition provision are two of the biggest ways that we can manipulate the gut microbiome. And so people are beginning to look at this and try and do this mechanistically. And indeed, we you know, have some preliminary data to show that there are long-term effects of being born, at least in animals, of, of being born by C-section. And compared to being born by normal delivery. And the literature isn't that clear. We know in C-section born babies, there's an increase in asthma and allergy and maybe other autoimmune diseases. But the link with neurodevelopmental disorders isn't that clear as yet. But it deserves more study and it's something that we're doing a lot of uh, investigation on right now. With C-section rates escalating, especially elective C-section in the developing world, something we need to take a lot of caution on and, and, and investigate thoroughly. And what about the question of autism? Um, is there any association possibly with what's going on in the intestine and autism? What we found actually in our studies in mice that lacked uh, bacteria, these are what we call germ-free animals or the equivalent of a, a mouse in a bubble, like a boy in the bubble. And, and these animals, when they grow up, we, we find lots of different changes in their brains and on their behaviour. And these changes tend to be much more prevalent in males than females. And that's surprising. And so that got us thinking, well, autism, for example, is a disorder which is four times more prevalent in males than females. And so we, we started exploring social behavior, which is one of the key symptoms of autism. And, and these mice that lack bacteria have clear social uh, deficits. So to have normal social behavior, we need to have 
normal uh, levels of bacteria in our gut. That much is clear. And then really interesting work from Caltech, they showed that in a mouse model of autism, that there is differences in the gut microbiota, differences in the leaky gut, and that they could reverse these really dramatically and the behavior by giving a specific bacteria just after weaning. And so this opens up the concept, at least, that there could be in the future potential for the development of bacterial interventions for autism. Incredible stuff. John Cryan from University College Cork. Now, we've heard how our gut bugs can be both a help and a hindrance. A particularly nasty bacterium, it's the cause of over 10,000 infections per year in the UK alone, is C. diff or Clostridium difficile. It can cause severe long-term diarrhoea and inflammation in your guts. It's a particular problem for the elderly and tends to occur when people receive antibiotics for infections and these also wipe out their resident population of good bacteria. So what can be done about this? Well, recently the idea of a faecal transplant, or transpusion, as I believe it's termed, uh, has been gaining traction. Microbiologist Brendan Wren from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine is here with us to explain why. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Kat. Good evening. Hello. So basically, explain to me, what are faecal, or I guess poo transplants? How does this work? What was the idea behind it? Well, actually, it's quite an old idea from about 25 years ago. As you mentioned, Clostridium difficile it's an organism that takes over the gut uh, when you take antibiotics and can cause severe disease and can be life-threatening. And one of the problems is you get relapses over and over again. And in desperate cases, because it is quite a dramatic and desperate thing to do, to try and re-establish the balance of your microbiota is to have a faecal transplant. So essentially to try to replace the bacteria that you've lost uh, and re-establish the balance. Anecdotally, this has worked uh, for quite a few years and uh, more and more of these have been done worldwide and, and it's gained traction, as you mentioned. And is this actually poo? I mean, let, let, let's do some details here. Sorry if anyone's eating dinner. Is this poo? Which end does it go in? How does it work? Uh, it is poo, so people maybe they have their own or maybe uh, their partners and uh, more and more commonly now is the idea of uh, poo banks around. So within your own poo, you obviously have your own uh, microbes and you need that to re-establish the balance. So, so yeah, it's literally that and, and it's encased in motion and it's given orally uh, so it allows you to uh, re-establish your gut microbiota. And is this like kind of a, a poo in a pill or sort of a, a poo shake? Uh, it's, it's uh, I guess more of a poo in a pill. I guess the issues with it are that you don't know what microbes you're putting in and potentially could be putting in some bad ones. Oh. And in some countries, uh, they, they refuse to do it. But However, some patients are really desperate and Clostridium difficile can kill people. And back in 2004, 8,000 people in the UK died. So if you have a persistent problem with it, it's a desperate measure, but uh, it's increasingly being used. And you say it's increasingly being used, but what's the evidence that it actually works? I mean, have there been clinical trials done of this yet? Some clinical trials have been done recently, but because it's such a desperate measure, it's hard to get high enough numbers. So it is more anecdotal. What we're interested in in, in our research is we have a mouse model of Clostridium difficile and reinfection. And we've been able to, in, in this day and age, as one of the speakers mentioned earlier, you know, we can sequence bacteria quite easily. So we can work out the content of the poo and uh, in terms of bacteria. And that way, what we want to do is to 
get a magic cocktail, if you like, of bacteria that we know don't cause disease. And, and with this cocktail, we'll be able to re-establish the microflora in a more defined approach rather than a poo pill. Yeah, because it does sound uh, kind of gross. I mean, we hear all the time about the adverts for probiotics to help our healthy bacteria. Uh, are people quite reluctant about the idea of either a poo transplant or a, a bacterial transplant in this kind of slightly more cleaned up way? Well, there's a certain yuck factor about a, a poo pill, um, but the people are desperate if it's going to save their lives or do it. And and that, that's why more and more of these have, have been done because Clostridium difficile has, you know, tripled over the last few years in, in our hospitals. And these persistent, particularly for persistent infections, then uh, it, it's one possibility. And just very briefly to wrap up, I and mean, we sometimes hear about the idea that maybe you could transfer uh, poo from different people, share your microbiome, and that might change other characteristics. You know, for example, your weight or something like that. Is there is there evidence on that really briefly? Uh, there's not really evidence yet on that. Uh, uh, as your previous speakers mentioned, your, your microbiomes have been associated with with everything to do with diet and uh, health, cancer, etc. But we're only at the early stages. And I, I think with the new technology, we've been able to sequence and work out the actual bacteria there then we can have a more rational approach about uh, our microbiome. So my cunning plan to find a thin person and extract some of their poo and then eat it is is not going to work for me right now. I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> it. It does sound fantastic. Are there hopes for, for larger trials for this in the future? Yeah, for certainly in the future, and particularly in the US, and, and lots of companies are, are setting up in this particular area. Poo banks will be around, I'm sure. You'll have your... Not just your genome sequence, but, you know, the, the genomes of your gut ba bacteria. So it's going to take off, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure we can probably refer to it as a, a brave poo world. Thank you very much. That's uh, Brendan Wren from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. A tweet from Ed Wilson. He says, at Naked Scientists, I hope there aren't too many pseudoscientists listening and now dreaming up a simple probiotic yoghurt cure for autism. Let's hope not. Thank you very much to our guests this week, Brendan Wren, whom you just heard, Marcello Riggio, Jess Metcalf, John Cryan, and also Ed Yong. Now let's finish with a colourful question of the week because Danielle Blackwell has been helping us to answer this question from Harsh. Why do some things like petrol create a rainbow effect on the surface of water? Here's Cambridge University's expert in nanophotonics, Professor Jeremy Baumberg, to shed some light on this. The organic molecules in petrols float on top of water since they're hydrophobic, which means they don't like to mix with water. The layer of petrol spreads out across the water, but not evenly. In some places, it's only one molecule deep, while in others, it's much thicker. Light reflects from both the top petrol surface, but also the lower boundary between petrol and water. This means that some light rays, the ones that bounce off the petrol water boundary, have to travel further than the rays that reflect directly off the surface of the petrol. Making this longer journey can mean that a light wave reflected off the petrol water boundary has its peaks and troughs out of alignment with the waves that reflect directly off the surface of the petrol. When this happens, the two waves can cancel each other out, leaving a dark patch. But because the light that comes from the sun is white light, it contains all the different colours of the rainbow mixed together. The distances between the peaks and troughs of the waves in red light are much bigger than in blue light. This means that while light waves of some colours will meet at the petrol surface out of alignment and cancel out, light of other colours will arrive back at the surface in sync, where they can add together and make a brighter patch corresponding to that colour. Different colours of light have different wavelengths, so the reflected waves from the lower boundary come back with peaks and troughs slightly shifted, depending on how far they had to travel through the petrol layer. And because the thickness of the oil varies across the surface, 
different places look different colours. Thank you, Professor Baumberg, for that colourful answer. Next week, we'll be remembering We Ain't Nothing But Mammals with this question from Bar Royale. Is attraction for the same sex found in animals too? And if you think you know the answer, you can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can also find us on Facebook, tweet at Naked Scientists, or join the debate on our forum. That's at nakedscientist.com forward slash forum. That's it for this week. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills, Khalil Thurloway and Daniel Blackwell for production. And do be sure to join us next week when we're looking at the science of love. We'll be asking, can algorithms help you to find your perfect partner? Can you make someone fall in love with you? And we'll find out about the world's first remote-controlled sperm. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University. It's supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and the STFC. My name's Chris Smith and thank you at home very much for listening. Goodbye.